Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Views on View. This week on our panel, we have Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. Lindsay Wardell. Hello, also from Portland. I'm Charles Maxwood, not in Portland. My book just came out. You can check it out. I'll just give the title here. I'll talk about it in the picks. It's the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. We have a special guest this week, and that's Austin Gill. Austin, do you want to say hello? Yeah, hi. From uh, uncharacteristically rainy San Diego. Oh, nice. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Let people know who you are and why you're famous and all that stuff. My name is Austin. I live in San Diego. I work at a company called Reveal Biosciences. We do really interesting stuff with taking tissue samples and putting them into images or creating images for slides and then passing those through machine learning to improve diagnostic uh, like pathologists. And I'm doing full stack development with them and I'm not famous, so that's all I can say. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype and I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine, and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. All right, so you, it looks like, are the author of Utensils. I was looking at it and I'm like, this is cool. Do you want to just talk about what it is and... Sure. So it came out of the need to uh, scratch my own itch. I had worked on several projects in the past and was constantly kind of reaching back to previous projects to copy some code from a component and paste it into a new one. And I realized, you know, I kind of want to not have to do this for every project. So I wanted to build components that were usable across every project, but could be styled and branded unique to whatever the project I was working on as well as supporting uh, my desire to build accessible UIs. Yeah, it makes sense. It was interesting just looking at it because a lot of the component libraries that you have out there, they're opinionated. They, they kind of provide like a fully baked set of features and things like that. And, and yours are actually, hey, style it yourself. I'm just going to give you all of the accessibility things that you need to, to run things. And then, you know, it's relatively lightweight and things like that, which is also really nice. Yeah, so it, it certainly is still opinionated and it's still, you know, pre-version one. So there's some things that I'm trying to figure out and get more people using and, and get some feedback on. But I guess a couple of the, the main pillars of it is this concept of what I'm calling naked components that, yeah, have zero or the very, very minimum amount of styling required to to get it, you know, like a modal, you need a little bit of styling to get it to pop up on a page and be centered and, and what you would expect from a modal. But if I want to use it on two different projects that have completely different brand styling, uh, I can do that using just you know the styles that are in project A and then the styles in project B, and I still get the same functionality that I need to, to move a project forward faster. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny because in your 
blog article where you talked about it, you kind of talked about how half the time it's it's actually easier to not use one of those component libraries and just build your own. And then it does everything you want, including the accessibility. And so I kind of want to just move right into the accessibility piece for a minute and, and talk a bit about that. So accessibility is something that every time I've tried to figure it out, I just get lost and then I throw my hands up and then I give up. And I feel a little bit bad about that because I want people to be able to use my apps. But, you know, it, the, the ROI just doesn't seem to be there because it's such a giant hill to climb, not necessarily because it's not going to pay off on the other side. Yeah, uh, accessibility is a super nuanced topic. And, well, a lot of the discussion points revolve around where your values are and how you can quantify, you know, that ROI that you're talking about. So if, you know, you can play both sides of the coin and say accessibility is good because more people can use your application and the web should be inclusive and all of these things. And on the other side, you have the real cost of putting developer time into learning accessibility, testing it, building things that are accessible and this and that. And if you're purely looking at it from a, a financial perspective and you can quantify developer hours to the ROI, well, then you might be able to say, you know, it, it's not a good business decision to build accessible components. And then you get into discussions about, well, what if, you know, from a legal sense, your company can can get into a lawsuit and then there's all that and or the cost of not being able to support or create an experience that users, more users can use. And, you know, then you lose conversion rates. And so it's very nuanced and and interesting. And so my goal is to just build a library so you don't even have to think about it. It's, you know, as easy as possible to, to make things accessible and you don't have the cost and you get all the benefit. That makes sense. Lindsay, Steve, have either of you done much with accessibility? I haven't done anything myself. The the most I've I've done myself is try to make buttons buttons, put on attributes for images if they don't load. And when I used Bootstrap, I would use the ARIA tags that they provided in their their example, but I haven't used it a lot myself personally. Yeah, I I think the ex- extent of my accessibility has been things like, you know, alt tags and any little thing I can see in there that, you know, helps a screen reader, something that's not visible that provides information to a screen reader. I've recently been reading about ARIA tags because I used to see them all the time in page headers and go, what's ARIA? Is somebody singing or something? You know, and I finally figured out, uh, did some reading, figured out what uh, what the ARIA roles are for and, and the information they provide. So, you know, probably haven't been doing here as much as I should be so far. On the note of ARIA tags, don't mean to get off topic if it's too much, but is there a good resource to find those? Do you know? W3.org actually has a Y ARIA or WAI-ARIA spec. So it's a it's an awesome resource because they include, you know, the reasons why this is an issue, when it's appropriate to use different ARIA tags. And also something that I leaned on heavily was code examples on how you would implement certain common UI patterns in a way that's accessible. Yeah. We'll put links to that in the show notes. But what I'm curious here about is I don't have to be an expert anymore. Is that what Vue Tinsels does for me? <laughs> yeah, that's the goal. I mean, you know, this is, it's kind of a, a constantly, trying to hit a constantly moving target because not everyone that, well, 
a big audience that we talk about when we talk about accessibility is screen reader users, and that's just really just a small subset. But taking that as an example, not every screen reader user uses their screen reader the same way, and so there's a lot of testing that needs to be ha- that needs to happen, and there's a lot of research going. You know, as a developer, I can I can turn on my screen reader and play around with it how I would imagine someone that uses it on a regular basis would, but it's not going to be the same thing, right? And so there's there's definitely some testing that, that has to happen there. And yeah, with utensils, if you can have a modal component or an alert or a dropdown or something that, that works the same as what you're used to as a, as a visual user and just trust that all the ARIA tags or all the you know, keyboard navigation or focus state is taken care of, then you shouldn't really have to think about it. So accessibility, you know, all the different things that you need to do to make something accessible seems like a pretty, there's a lot underneath. So I'm looking at your blog post and you talk about the different things you try to address in terms of ARIA tags and you mentioned some other general topics. Can you go through some so I guess the hit the high points on some of the specific areas that your library is addressing in terms of accessibility. Sure. Well, actually, I should ask: Is there swearing? Do you guys have like beepers or sensors for things, or should I not say something? No, we we don't bleep them out or anything. We try okay. and keep a clean rating, but yeah, sometimes they slip in. So if they slip in, okay. they slip in. Sure. I just want to touch because you said like accessibility is is hard or or something like along those lines, right? And I, I, I want to point out this website that's definitely satirical, but it's, um, and I won't, I won't say the full name, but you can probably figure it out. It's motherblankingwebsite.com. And it basically, it's satire on the fact that the internet is built on this idea of documents, right? And it's just like text-based documents. Mm-hmm. And we as developers actually are the ones that break things like accessibility inherently just a, a bit of text uh, in or you know markup is accessible is fast you can view it on every browser and it's responsive and all those things are built in and what we do by adding our own styles and javascript and all these things is we actually break the experience and make it more make it slower and make it not work across devices so in that regard like that's why things like Aria exist is to to kind of let us have our our cake and eat it too that we can make these designs or we can uh, build these designs that are a little bit more immersive but maintain some of the foundations that the web was built on the web was built to be inclusive for everyone you know and so yeah some of the things that that Viewtensils kind of addresses is making sure well a good example is when you have a modal component on a page, everyone's seen that. You click a button, this like pop-up comes up. One thing that a lot of developers don't account for is if I'm using a keyboard to navigate, when that modal comes up, I should know, like let's say I can't see and I require some sort of keyboard navigation, right? I should know that that modal has popped up. So the focus should go from the button that I clicked before to that modal component. And then if I tab through the contents of that modal, the default behavior of the browser is going to go through all the contents in the modal. And then when you tab again, it's going to go to the next thing on the document, whether that's a link or a button or an input. So one thing that Viewtensils does, for example, is it's this concept called focus trapping, where if you're inside of the modal, all of the focus should 
should remain within that modal until that context is gone or the modal has closed. So you tab through the modal, and then when you hit when you get to the last focusable element, you hit tab again, and it starts you at the top of the list. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. There's a lot of things, you know, on top of the ARIA attributes, there's also these user experience considerations that kind of get thrown by the wayside if you're not paying attention to it. So let's say that I'm I'm lining this up. I'm going to pull in view tensils. How do I start building my UI on top of it while still maintaining all of the good stuff that it gives me? It's pretty easy. If you're familiar with Vue, a lot of the concepts are going to be this, or it, it leans heavily on slots and scope slots. So slots are, you know, where you can take you can take a component and you can put some content inside or within the two tags of that component. And then your content that lives inside there can be whatever markup. It'll be, you know, wherever the component is designed to show that. So Vutensils tries to be as out of the way as possible and give you the UI and, and the bare minimum styles that you would need. So take that modal again for an example. It's it's going to have like a background and it's going to put the content um, in the modal in the middle of the page when that modal is present. And then when you want to style things within your you know, CSS library or some other view library that you're using as well, uh, you pretty much just put that, the content that you want inside of the, the modal tag. And that's how most of the components that are relevant that need to wrap around your content work. So all of your styles, all of your classes, you would just put that inside. There's also some ways to, well, because accessibility, you have to have control of the actual HTML. There are certain parts of the component that you can't necessarily reach because it's you know nested HTML elements. And so one thing that's important for styling is being able to pass in, like you might want to pass in your custom CSS selectors, right? Or your classes. And so there's a way to pass that through props to get the classes that you want on the output markup that you need. Does that make that sense? That's the question I was going to ask. Because I was curious about the styling on these things. Since they are naked components, you need to be able to make it fit the rest of your yeah. environment. And I, I saw in the in the blog where you were listing like the Vutensil styling .vts dash something. So I was mm-hmm. curious on how you would add in those other styles. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's like some uh, some things that I I wanted to consider. So for example, I, I follow kind of them sort of pattern class naming, and that's to try and avoid naming conflicts or styling conflicts and allow people to edit or add rules to style these things. Again, very few of them have styles associated, but you know, if I want to be able to edit or add some styles to a, an element on the page, I need to be able to access that. And CSS classes is one of the best ways. But I also want to avoid some very tricky, overly specific class names or class rules, right? So yeah, I, I also, I don't know if either, any of you have gotten into using Tailwind CSS, but there's some libraries like Bootstrap's a good example, Tailwind, but these, these CSS libraries that are heavily reliant on putting classes on your HTML elements. So that was, that's kind of table stakes. Like I, I had to be able to provide some way to still be able to control all the markup that I need for accessibility reasons while allowing consumers to customize the things that they're most likely going to need access to, like classes. Yeah, it would seem that 
your tool would be a pretty good fit with something like Tailwind, where it's all about just adding utility classes as compared to providing whole components, as compared to maybe integrating with something like Bootstrap or, you know, Beautify or Bulma or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, you can use something like Beautify or Bootstrap with utensils. I don't know if it's necessarily the best fit because if you have a library like Beautify, they actually do a really good job with their accessibility. Same with the the folks that are working on Bootstrap and the the View Bootstrap port. They do a really good job of accessibility. So if that's one of your concerns, then just taking a look at the the source code or the the output code that, that their libraries create, it's it's good. This is more for you know the folks that don't necessarily want an entire library in their project and kind of like, if I'm not going to use the entire library, there's probably going to be a lot of unused, unnecessary code that gets into my project, that gets into my bundle that I might want to avoid. Don't you run that same risk though with uh, view tinsels that you're going to have some components in there that I'm not going to use? No, I was just going to actually bring that up because I was looking, um, if you look on his getting started pages, he talks about how you can import just the elements, just the components that you need instead of importing the whole library in one fell swoop. So if you just need the vAlert or the vAsync or vDrawer or whatever, you just run an import statement that imports that portion, you're basically destructuring. And yeah. then, you, then you just have that available in your project and you don't have all the other components if you don't need them. We'll just pretend that I asked that so that could be clarified on the show. Chuck, <laughs> I, I wasn't going to tell everybody that you and I worked that out together ahead of time, but uh, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. This was one of the kind of opinionated design, uh, design decisions that I had made that I'm not, I'm not sure if it's, if by version one, if this is going to change, it kind of depends what people want. But when you have a, a component library that you use with Vue, generally you'll do something like in your main Vue configuration file, You'll import that library and then you'll use it as a plugin. You'll tell Vue, you know, Vue.use to use that plugin. And then Vue.use provides library authors with some, the Vue instance and some, some ways to register components and register directives and all these things. So my project doesn't do that. And instead, everything, every feature, every directive, every component is opt in only. So there is no there's no actual plugin to install everything. You have to choose the things that you want, and the goal of that is so that it forces you to to be lightweight. Viewify has something similar with their View CLI three plugin, where you can describe which elements you actually want, and it will only include those. Or actually, I think the CLI will actually go through your project and on build kind of do some tree shaking and only use the the ones that you include in your project, which is which is super cool. But yeah, it was it was designed so that, you know, you're not going to have any unused things unless you do, you know, unless you do accidentally import it explicitly and then don't end up using it. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I can see, yeah, where like if I pull in bootstrap, it's bootstrap seems to be the most popular one. Yeah, I kind of get all of bootstrap in my bundle. And you can do some tree shaking on the JavaScript to clean some of that up, but it's still, it's not perfect. It's another step. It's another process. It's another thing I have to worry about. And I've seen it where, yeah, it just pulls the whole thing in and then bundles the whole thing up. Yeah, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I think the perfect scenario is 
is kind of how, how Vutify is hitting it, where you can include the whole project and then the CLI will worry about tree shaking things out. Or even with Bootstrap, you could technically drill down into their into the NPM or the node mm-hmm. modules package and like locate just the component you want and import just that. And that works, like you said, to tree shake out some of the JavaScript. I don't know if you could do the same with the the CSS though, because Bootstrap, you know, it's not just JavaScript, it's CSS as right. well. You could use some a tool like purge CSS and and get rid of any, you know, rules for CSS classes that don't exist in your markup, but that seems like yeah. a lot. <laughs> seems a little excessive if you're gonna be bringing in Bootstrap anyway. Yeah, exactly. I don't I don't I mean I don't I don't consider Vutensils as a sort of competitor for those. I think that if you're in a position that you need a lot of UI components and that are already styled and you need them available, then yeah, reach for those libraries because they do an excellent job and they're really well supported and there's a lot of there's a lot of plugins and things to go on top of those. But this was yeah, I kind of scratched my own itch. Like I like to have a very tailored UI. I like to write things myself a lot. And I don't like to have to look up the ARIA stuff and have to do the same modal component that I've done 50 times before, you know, on every project. One other thing I'm wondering is that with Bootstrap, they kind of assume that you're going to use their grid. You're going to use it across your entire page. Is Vutensils kind of set up that same way? And if not, then do I have to go and figure out ARIA tags and things like that for the stuff that I'm not using Vutensils with? Can you elaborate on that a bit? So, for example, if I pull in Bootstrap, you know, it has like the, the menu navigation and the, the grid system for laying out the page and all of that stuff built into it. And so they kind of expect you to use Bootstrap across the whole page. Does mm-hmm. Vutensils assume that you're going to do that? Or do you just kind of pick and choose, I want this here and I want this one here and I want that one there and the rest of it's up to me? Yeah, no, I'm, because every component is totally opt-in, none of them are dependent on any other component being available or any other feature. This gets a little bit tricky with things like having visually hidden content that is still accessible on the page. Mm -hmm. So there hasn't been too many areas where I've had to have redundancies. So far, it's been every component is completely self-contained and self-packaged. So then I get all of the niceness with the ARIA tags and things like that on the ones that I use from utensils. And the rest of them, I have to make sure that I make accessible. Yeah, you mean if you use like a if you make your own components outside of the yeah. utensils library? Yeah. yeah. So just like if you made a, a view component from scratch, you would probably want to, if you are trying to make accessible components, then yeah, you're going to have to yeah. add those ARIA tags if it needs it. Make sure that you know if you're making a custom input component or a custom like radio button or checkbox then you probably want to visually hide you, you know you probably want to use an actual input for the checkbox mm-hmm. but then visually hide it and do the whole like song and dance of uh, custom css stuff. yeah that stuff's always fun but those are the kinds of things that i'm going to get from view tinsels right yeah so there are some components the latest release has like a, a file input or kind of an advanced file input that you could actually, it provides a scope slot so you can see to support drag and drop features. So it, it provides some some data on whether a user is dragging and, and the area is like droppable or when they actually drops the file into the drop zone, handling those files and also using a native file input for that. 
But there's things like checkboxes and radios that I haven't created UI support for custom checkboxes and radios. That might be something to do. But even little things like let's like let's take uh, you know we're talking a lot about ARIA attributes, but that's not even the entire conversation. Like some of it is if I have an input, that input should always have a label. Right. And there's a bunch of different ways to make a label. You can have a separate element label with a for attribute that targets an ID of the input that it's associated with. And then your input needs to have an ID on it. You can put an input inside of a label and then you just have the text for the label. And you can have just a blank input with an ARIA label attribute. So there's plenty of ways to do it. I don't know. That was that was one thing that I made that was like one approach to have a, con- a convenient input component that handles, you know, having the label on there. Yeah, it makes sense. So as yeah. far as testability goes, if I'm pulling these in, I mean, how much testing do I need to do? Because I'm assuming you've already tested them and they mostly do what you expect. So... Yeah, well, I don't have unit tests for the project yet. That is something that is on the to-do list. I have been testing them. I mean, I've used these components in a few projects of my own. So they are getting real-world testing done. And there have been some bugs that I've caught and some changes. And part of the testing comes from, you know, I need, I have a few people that have been working on cross-browser support and putting Mm -hmm. in issues on GitHub. And a lot of the testing kind of comes from the community where there's going to be scenarios that I haven't encountered or thought of or anything like that, that I want to have accounted for. But yeah, I mean, anytime you pull in a third-party library, my opinion is that you shouldn't have to write tests for that library. You should just assume that it's kind of the library itself is tested. If I have a view project and I bring in Vuex, I don't expect to have to write unit tests for making sure that Vuex works the way Vuex is supposed to work. Like library authors should be responsible for that. And this is a relatively young library, so there's still some tests that need to be written, but it is getting good, uh, good real-world testing done. Yep. I'd like to ask about the, uh, the three directives you have in your new release. I see the copy directive, and I, I love that. That's something I've struggled with in making very user-friendly as well. What brought you to making the directives in addition to the components? Uh, <laughs> you know, again, the, the, the fact that this is kind of a, a library that scratches my own itch, it's, it really started from, I just need a place on GitHub where I can put all these things that I've used in the past that I know I'm going to use in the future. And the fact that this whole library is opt-in to the features that you want makes it really convenient to just put in all of the utilities and components that I think would be helpful to other people or just myself in the future. So the autofocus one is one that is accessibility focused or at least good UX focused, right? Think about when you go to google.com you don't have to click into the search bar. It's just when, when you land there, the focus automatically goes there. So there's a lot of cases where that's, that's going to be needed in a UI, especially for people that are relying on keyboards. Something like the, the copy directive was something that I, I've used in a project before and I had to put in a project just the other day. And so I said, well, if I'm going to use this in multiple projects, I'm, I'm sure I can't be the only one. And it, it's nice to just have it convenient. Yeah, I like that they're right there. Um, since you're already bringing in this very useful library, it just makes that, like you said, really convenient to do all those very basic things that 
take a lot of code sometimes. Yeah, I mean, utensils, at the end of the day, it's it's designed primarily for to make building accessible UIs convenient, but also just to build applications convenient, you know? Grab the pieces I need. And and if you want, there's other there's other libraries out there that have these kind of single purpose focus. Like there is a library just for adding that V copy directive. And if you want, you can use that. I, I personally don't like having too many packages in my dependency list. And one thing that's also really important to me in developing Vutensils is it doesn't have it doesn't really have any dependencies besides Vue. That's always important. I like that. Yep. So what's coming next for Vue Tinsels? What, what is it going to take to get it to V1? A couple things. In, in what's coming next, I want to work on the documentation and get some examples out there for people to... You know, I, I think it's such a weird concept. I don't, I've never seen anything, anyone else doing this, this concept of naked components. So I think there's going to be a bit of an onboarding struggle for some folks that are used to pulling in a library and just having it everything they need right there and ready and styled. I do think the people that are using it see the value and and see the purpose and understand it, but I want to bridge the gap between the two and, you know, explain why why you might want to use this when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate. There's a lot of content that I want to create in terms of blog posts explaining some of the value and and this and that, and kind of getting into more of a deep dive on each individual component. And then to get to V1, I really need a lot more community members testing it and playing around with it and giving me feedback and you know telling me this thing is wrong because it doesn't work this way or how I expect and, and this and that. So I don't see a V1 in the near future, but that doesn't mean that it's it's super unstable. Like this is this is coming from. Uh, a lot of my own experience. So I, I've made a lot of the mistakes and, and I've learned from them and I'm trying to fix them and put them out for people. Have, uh, have any of you got to actually test the library? I personally haven't. I've been juggling a bunch of stuff. I put together a challenge for 100 days of view. That episode should be coming out here in a week or so as we record this. It'll be out by the time this one comes out because it's scheduled to come before this one. But yeah, I'm intending to pull in a lot more of these libraries and spend a bunch of time on like Vuex and Vuetensils. And there are a handful of other ones that I really want to try out and just see, you know, what we're looking at. Quasars on my list of things to play with. So yeah, it, it's there, but I spend a lot of my time running a podcast network. And so I don't get as much <laughs> time as I want. Yeah, I've been pretty much heads down on a couple uh, other projects, one using Beautify uh, for work and then outside stuff. But I'm one of those, as I've said a few times, design ignorant developers. And so first thing I'm trying to bone up on is just, you know, CSS usage and being able to do some more CSS implementation on my own instead of having to rely on a bootstrap or a Unify or a Bulmer or something like that. You know, possibly looking at things like Tailwind or just some basic CSS. And I think once I get a better handle on that, then I'll be able to use something like this that's bare bones and then I can can build on top of from a from a theming or design standpoint. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Well, I was just going to say, it's funny that there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of developers out there, front-end developers that have a lot of CSS chops and really like to like to get into the custom CSS themselves. And that's, I used to be there until I really went deep on JavaScript. And I think that a library like this, that's kind of the sweet spot for 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 this library is is the people that like to get in and tinker and 
and do the custom CSS sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to playing with this. I'm going to rewrite my blog using Gridsome, and I'm already using Tailwind, so I feel like bringing in Vutensils is going to be a perfect match and just start using some of these components, even though it's not a full application, uh, being able to use things. I mean, V-Resize looks very interesting to me, for example. Yeah, I'd like to get together with Adam and and get Vutensils in front of him, because I know Adam, the the creator of Tailwind, because I know that he has done a lot with Vue. Uh, I think he's like a Laravel developer and he did a, a really good uh, course on advanced Vue. And yeah, I'd like to get this in front of him to see how it works for him because I think that we're, we're kind of swinging, swinging towards more of a functional like composition approach in programming. And that's where CSS libraries like Tailwind come in where you just have this one unit of functionality and for each class and you kind of compose up what you need for your component, the same kind of concept can be applied to Vutensils where it's like, I don't want this component to be responsible for the style and the functionality. I want it to just be responsible for this functionality and you can kind of compose it that way. Yeah, it's definitely going to be aimed towards someone who likes to do things on their own and has the chops to do that add on top of it. Um, you know, I think, you know, library, other libraries that do more, they've got their place for, you know, people that just want to be able to drop something in and have it look good and be functional. So, but uh, for the people that like to get in and build things piece by piece so they can be just the way they want it, this is definitely a, a tool for them as I see it. Yeah, like I said, I, I don't I don't want this to replace those libraries that are, kind of have everything baked in. I, I mean, we use uh, Vutify at work and, and it's great because I can make a UI that a lot of people are familiar with and, you know, people have, learned what to expect from these different components and styles. And so it's it's really handy for rapid prototyping. But yeah, for the folks that, that really like that tailored approach and that care about um, accessibility, this is, this is kind of that sweet spot that, like I said, I'm, I'm describing myself. I feel like I don't know if I'm the, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be the only real audience for this library or not, but I think that there was a need for it out there. And I hope that people find this concept of naked components interesting and worth checking out. Along the lines of what you were just talking about, I've heard talked about you know multiple times in multiple podcasts and other articles. The most successful tools generally start as somebody scratching their own itch, you know, as compared to somebody who says, "Well, I think there's a market for this tool, so I'll build this, even though I don't really need it." You know, when you get somebody that's that's doing something yeah. because it's interesting to them and they have a use case for it. And I'll say, Hey, maybe somebody else is interested in this. And they throw it out there and sure enough, you know, you've got other people that are, that are looking for the same tool because they have the same problem. So I would say that there's a definitely an audience and it's just a matter of reaching them and, and then finding this and, and go from there. Yeah. I just got tired of having to like write custom CSS overrides to make something look like, my brand or whatever. Yeah, I've been lugging around a, a post CSS file to all my applications, so I, I totally get that. <laughs> yeah, we, we all have ways around some of these issues. Yeah, copy-paste, man. Copy-paste. Oh, yeah. If people want to contribute to Vutensils, is there a good way for them to do that? Yeah, it's on NPM, so if you want to install uh, NPM install Vutensils, that's an easy way to get started just playing around with it and checking it out. The project's hosted on GitHub. It's all open source. Uh, so GitHub Issues is a great place to, to get started. All the source code is, is right there. And 
I mean, if you don't even want to use the library and just want to copy over some of the source code and use it in your projects, that's that's cool too. Like, I really stand behind some of these components, and I think that some of them are really cool and interesting, and hope other other people do as well. And yeah, to contribute, GitHub.com slash Stegosaurus slash Viewtensils. Nice. What's the story behind Stegosaurus? <laughs> oh man, I've had that for a long time now, and. I don't know. I, I was coming up, trying to come up with something that was unique and brandable and I didn't make anything interesting. And I just came up with like a stegosaurus, but source code. Right. Yeah. I just figured yeah. maybe you were really into dinosaurs or something when you were younger. <laughs> it came from there. Yeah. No, dinosaurs. I mean, yeah. It was supposed to be uh, for bigger and better things and never, never fully came to anything. So now it's just become my, what I use everywhere on the internet. Yeah, that opens up a door to a whole bunch of interesting names. Tyrannosaurus, open source, you know, dinosaurs, yeah. like I said. Yeah. I'm going to have to copyright there, a couple of those. There was a bunch, well, there was there's some companies that have already done things like Dinosaurus and Rhinosaurus and all that. And just uh, the Stegosaurus, I mean, anything that ends with Saurus, you can change to Source. And out of all the options that I could think of, Tyrannosaurus... Brachiosaurus, Stegosaurus just seemed very friendly and approachable and a lot more in line. So, oh, was that one of the more friendlier dinosaurs? Is that it? Well, I don't know. Stegosaurus, but oh, okay. (laughs) I love the logo too, where it's just in the brackets. Yeah, that was, yeah, my girlfriend helped me with that and it just kind of stuck around. Nice. All right. If people want to find you online, where do they find you? Yeah, stegosaurus.com. Anywhere on the interwebs at Stegosaurus, it's probably me. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, on GitHub. Uh, hang out on the the View Discord channel. Uh, I think I'm just Austin Gill on there. Boring. Nice. Well, if I can give a shout out, actually, yeah. for any anyone in San Diego, um, I do. Ho- I am one of the organizers for the San Diego JavaScript and the San Diego View meetups. San Diego JS is the largest tech meetup in San Diego, and we have. I think nine events a month. So it's really fun and active and a really awesome community. Awesome. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit. And you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile, and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Lindsay, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. My pick today is a Markdown editor called Typora, uh, typora.io. It's just fully featured, got lots of different abilities. It says it is accessible, so it has some accessibility, as well as being able to import and export from different file types. Right now, it is in a beta, um, so you can download it for free. Once it's fully released, it looks like they're going to be charging for it, but it's been in beta for at least a couple of years since I found it. So I don't expect that anytime soon. All right. Steve, do you have some picks for us? So last week, I think it was on this podcast, I'd mentioned that I was going to be doing something called the Death Nut Challenge, 
later that day or the next day. And yes, I did it and survived, but, uh, but barely. It's a box that you can buy that has these sets of three nuts. And basically there's five different nuts that you go through, each one getting hotter and hotter supposedly. So you have to chew for 15 seconds, wait for 60 seconds, and then chew the next one all the way through. And then when you're done, you have to wait five minutes before drinking anything. So yeah, it was, it was definitely hot. The first one is pretty bad. Two and three weren't too bad to get to four and five. And in my last five minutes, I was literally walking around the office with my mouth open to get air movement through, uh, you know, because <laughs> I found that it was cooler to when airflow was coming into my mouth to cool it down. And then everybody that did it, uh, fortunately, we have a whole bunch of half and half, you know, because milk does really, you know, good or dairy products are really good at cooling down from really hot stuff like that. So once I chugged a bit of half and half, I was good, although my esophagus was hurting for probably uh, the next hour or so. But uh, I survived it, and I was proud. But, uh, yeah, definitely uh, an interesting challenge if you're into seeing how how um, you can eat really hot things or if you can. Nice. So Steve inadvertently picked peer pressure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> peer pressure uh, and masochism. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking masochism too. I almost said that. No, it wasn't peer pressure. It was just a thing that we do every year. And I said, hey, what the heck? Sounds like... Well, I don't know if I want to say fun, uh, <laughs> more of a, there, a, a challenge to see if I could overcome. Let's put it that way. Was any video made of this that might accidentally leak to the internet? Video was made. I was a little late to gathering because I had an issue come up, and but our CTO was taking actually taking video of it. I don't know if it can or will be leaked to the internet. I don't have access to it, but uh, I might have to see if I can find that. Nice. Okay, I've got a couple of picks. So I did mention the book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's The Max Coder's Guide because I'm planning on writing more books. So yeah, keep an eye out. I'm The next one's probably going to be The Max Coder's Guide to Keeping Current in Tech or something like that. And that's the other question I get asked all the time. How do I find a job and then how do I stay current? So yeah, that, that's something that I'm looking at. But yeah, this one's mostly focused on if you're looking for your first job, how do you get noticed? And if you are having trouble finding a job that you really like being at, or, you know, things have changed in your current job and you're not happy there anymore, you know, how, how do I become marketable and find a job that's going to make me happy? So yeah, go check it out. Cause I, I coached a whole bunch of people through the program and it turned out that it was very effective for them. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to help more people out with this particular issue. So yeah. And then my other two picks, I've been picking Christmas movies over the last few weeks. As we record this, is the week before Thanksgiving. So I'm just going to throw some stuff out there and uh, you can check them out. Last time I picked two movies that had the same actor in them. Same thing today. The actor this time is Bing Crosby. I'm curious if any of you know what movie was the first movie that had the song White Christmas in it. It's Holiday Inn, isn't it? Ah, you're the first one to get it. I've done like six <laughs> shows and everybody's like, well, I don't know. Thank you very much. I'm actually, you say, White Christmas, and I was going to be like, nope. I've seen these two movies that you're going to pick, so I've seen them multiple times. So, Yeah, so Holiday Inn, terrific movie. Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire it was made in the 1940s, and it's just a classic movie. I've seen some colored versions of it, you know, where they've kind of gone back and doctored the film so that it has colors in it. You know, those are nice. The black and white's kind of nostalgic and fun. But yeah, I 
I really, really have enjoyed that movie. And then the other movie is White Christmas. Also has that same song in it. Also has Bing Crosby in it. It's like 12 years older, but it's Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. And if you've ever watched any movies with Danny Kaye in them, he is hysterical. Oh my gosh, one of my all-time favorite movies that I've watched, and I got into this by a family that watched it every year at Thanksgiving, is The Court Jester. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's got a very, very young uh, murder shooter, Angela Lansbury. Uh-huh. She's like 19 or 20. And then I always forget her name, the gal that played Mrs. Burns in Mary Poppins. She's sort of his love interest, very young. Both of them very beautiful, but it's just hysterical. Some of the uh, scenes that are in there where there's the sword fighting or, you know, the thing at the end with the shells from the palace and the flagging with the dragon. Yep. Crazy, crazy good. So funny. Classic Danny Kay. The yeah. vessel with the pestle is the brew that is true. As a, <laughs> oh, you guys are making me so happy. <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's so good. Some of the famous, really famous actors, I want to say um, uh, Christopher or something. I'm going to have to look it up. But yeah, there's pretty well-known actors in, in those movies too. Yeah. Well, we'll put that in the picks as well. But yeah, those are my uh, my picks here for this this week. I've got more. Don't worry. Plenty more. But well, Glynis, uh, John, Glynis Johns was the lady, and then Basil Rathbone's in it. So yeah. he's a, a John Carradine. So yeah, lots of, lots of well-known actors in that one. Yeah, but these these are movies that just... Man, I just... I love them to death. They're things that we watch every year. I have to admit, my wife was the one that got me into some of these... But they are, they're wonderful movies. You can watch them with your family. There's nothing, you know, in them that makes you kind of go, oh, kids, <laughs> you know. So, uh, yeah, anyway. Oh, yeah, Very Young Rosemary Clooney and White Christmas. Awesome. Austin, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so I guess my pick would probably be just giving back into the community as an organizer for some events. Like, I always like when we get more people and there's plenty of ways to, to sort of get back. And a lot of people that are just coming out of boot camps feel like they don't have much to contribute. And I always say, hey, you can always contribute. Even if it's something that someone's already covered, you're going to have a different insight. And so, yeah, there's plenty of ways to give back. These uh, library authors, if you can make a contribution, if you've got some cash, if you work at a company and you can get them to make some sort of sponsorship. I don't have any way of accepting any money online yet. So, you know, go and help the Patreon for Vue or TypeScript or any of these open source projects. I think that's important. Yeah, and give give talks, go to meetups and, and support your local tech scene. Awesome. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. We'll have another one next week. And in the meantime, Max out. Adios. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>